today. Brothers and sisters, friends and comrades, this is the PRC Show. I'm your host, Paul Cooley, and thank you for listening. Readers and listeners, I think I forgot that again. Anyways, this is now episode 005 of our special series, Reading Parting the Waters, the uh, book by Taylor Branch. And that song you hear in the background is Freedom Highway by the Staple Singers. And why we are reading this book, because I want to. And, um, you know, let's just get right into the show. So I want to go over a couple letters because people really liked episodes 003 and 004. And I got some letters, so let's read them. Uh, this is Jim from... Fo- oh, Gabe, how are you doing? I'm great. Gabe's here. Okay. Yeah. Speak in the microphone, Gabe. Glad to be here. Okay. We, were, we are recording this on uh, December 22nd. Uh, 2022 no 2021 and it's 30 degrees out Um, first letter is from Jim from Fox Chapel and he says Paul please make sure to highlight the importance of the Communist Party Harry Haywood Ben Davis and other non-religious figures also is it possible you could get some real experts on the show to bring some credibility okay well he'll be pleased to learn that the communists are about to hove into view but I think we're as good as it gets when it comes to expertise, okay. at least on this podcast. We have a minor technical difficulty i got to address, which is fine. It's like I'm talking to myself. All right. We had a little uh, technical difficulty there, but that's okay. We're both uh, working dads, working parents, so it's you know hard to get this done. Okay. The second letter I have is a little bit meta, a little science fiction-y, but it's very important. <laughs> Paul, this is Paul yourself. You should have read Joanne Robinson's memoir of the Montgomery bus boycott before you did the episode. For all your enthusiasm for Robinson and Nixon, your failure to read this book neglects the importance of Fred Gray as well as her school president. This is negligence, and I wish I could no longer be a listener and supporter of the show, but I am you and you are me, so I can't do that. Okay, so what he's referring to, which is myself, is... I picked up this book, The Montgomery Bus Boycott and the Women Who Started It. It's the memoir of Joe Ann Gibson Robinson, who I mentioned in episodes 003 and 004, is my favorite character. And she goes through the scene where she makes all the copies, and this is what we find out. She gets a phone call from Fred Gray at 1130 at night. She has all these connections from the WPA, uh, Women's Political Action, that's not what it is. The Women's Political Caucus, whatever. Committee. Committee. And she has two, she talks to a business administrator at the college and says, Hey, can I get into the mimeograph place? And he's like, Sounds good. Do it. So he goes there. She goes there with two students and they make tons of copies all night, like 40,000 copies we went over. And then later on, the school, one of the school vice provosts or presidents, meets with her, and he's another black guy. I guess this is a black college, actually. It is. Right. Yes. It's a, it's a state college, but it's a segregated college, so it's all black students, all black, uh, I guess, black faculty. And he's like, he's like, Joanne, and she is fearful and afraid, and she pours her heart and soul into this, and he's like, I agree with you. You know what? I can't participate, but I agree with you. And then there's this matter of the leaflets. He's like, did you use the school property to do all this? And she's like, I'll pay for it. Don't worry about that. And he kind of says like, 
okay, let's just leave it at that. Be very careful. And so that's like, I think another little important element that you have in a, a, um, a uh, kind of an upper echelon, important person in the black community that could have went one way or the other that helps her out. Um, and you so rightly pointed out that, you know, her status, you know, is important. Um, and then she had these students, like she, she was up all night till seven in the morning. She went and taught class, then had students help her and everything went like swimmingly and great. So I feel like I need to say something to Paul Cooley, the listener here though, or, or the one in the other, um, in the uh, alternate universe. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think he's being unfair to our main host because, look, <laughs> we have to have a theory of knowledge for this podcast. We have to have uh, a central p- piece of work considering... Oh, this is an important piece of music. You're, we're going to go in for a second, but keep talking, Gabe. <laughs> now I'm distracted. What are we, it sounds like the Pink Panther. What are we I know it to? does. Okay, I'll, I'll turn that down. But keep going. Go ahead if you're going to sing my praises. It's just that because we're not obviously professional historians of the 1950s and the black freedom struggle, we decided, and look, the clue is in the name of the podcast, to read a book by Taylor Branch <laughs> right. and talk about it. So it's going to happen that there's more information in the world to yes, know than just what Taylor Branch is writing about. Um, and we're going to have to live with it. It's going to happen again that you're going to read something after the fact and wish you knew it and, and wish Branch had cited it. And we're going to have to struggle through it. Good point. Sorry for the uh, tongue clicking. I know that's been a problem, but I get excited and I have uh, excess saliva or dry. I don't know what it is. Um, I'm going to do a pause real quick. Okay. So why are you playing jazz over us talking? Okay, so we always do these little teasers, which the uh, the listeners like. And one of the things we are going to talk about today when we get into Chapter 6, A Taste of the World, is this song playing is important for this chapter because you will find out later. I can't really even give it away. If you know this song, then you will, you will already know the answer why. Something important is going to happen. and uh, So that's it. So we'll turn that song off. Uh, the other things we're going to learn is, uh, who says, I don't mind you criticizing my ideas, but I don't like your criticizing my words because I'm better at words than you are. <laughs> do you know the answer to that, Gabe? Don't do. say it. I do. Um, then we're going to find out where in the world did Martin Luther King Jr. meet Vice President Richard Nixon and what his thoughts on Nixon were. Then we are going to learn what civil rights leader starts early on preaching to chickens and cries when they are dinner. A lot of people should know that. Come on. Uh, Who is my Septima Clark? (laughs) That's going to be funny. And then um, what main character is attacked by a sharp object first? And then another character in our story gets also attacked and almost dies by a metal object, a knife or a cleaver. Okay. Crazy. So, let's get right into this, and before we go into it, I don't really think I like this chapter reading it, but I think I'm going to like talking about it. And the last two chapters were so exciting, it was a bus boycott, it's really the birth of the civil rights movement, and the way I think about it. Um, It puts King on the cover of Time magazine, it really accelerates things. This is a step back and we're kind of slowing things down, but there's a lot of interesting things going on here. There's things in this chapter that are annoying to me and 
sometimes I think Branch slows things down too slow. Come on, buddy. And I'm going to mention some stuff with the David Garrow book, which supplements this. Thoughts, initial thoughts, Gabe? Well, I find a chapter like this to be valuable because it shows the challenges and frustrations of what comes after a moment of escalation and a moment of accomplishment like at, at Montgomery, that when we learned about the civil rights movement in school or when you look at a a documentary for television, it goes from high point to high point to high point to high point. And you have this sense of this onrush of people spontaneously taking action inspired by words. They march, they demonstrate, they take risk, they have breakthroughs and the world changes. I don't think it's a very useful way to look at history. And I appreciate what branch is doing here because he's going to go into some of the problems that King has trying to figure out what to do next. So the boycott is over. Um, oh, my music's going to keep coming back on. We're having fun technical problems. The boycott's over, and King's now focus seems to be what Branch says is voter registration. He's kind of still touring the country as well. He meets up with an important person named Stanley Levison. Levison? He's a, he's a white guy. He becomes an important close friend. Rumors are that he's a communist, a leftist radical in his college days during the Depression, says Branch. Um, but he had a firm capitalist side to him. He was 44 years old when uh, King meets him, a socialist, I suppose. But he'd grown rich off of real estate investments. He was a lawyer that uh, wasn't, did not practice law. He owned a car dealership, but he never drove. I mean, this is he's kind of on the... Uh, you know, Rustin, very unique character. He was an official in the American Jewish Congress, and he helped defend the Rosenbergs, which breaks my heart thinking about that, those children. The Rosenbergs. Oh, do people know who they are? The Rosenbergs were two American Communist Party members that were convicted of giving spies of espionage to the Soviet Union of nuclear uh, secrets. And they were put on trial, and there was a big mass movement to say, do not convict these people, because conviction means death penalty and death. And they had two little kids. They were 35 and 37. So shocked. I'm going to cry thinking about this, because it's so horrifying. And they did. They were convicted, and they were killed. Uh, So anyways, he helped defend them. Fierce independent thinker, worked with A. Philip Randolph to support blacks trying to integrate public schools. Um, And Branch mentions that the Communist Party, we're going to talk about the party here, the American Communist Party, thought that integrating public schools was maybe like a revisionist idea, not revolutionary enough. Um, I think there's some back and forth on what party members were doing, but uh, some people thought, and I guess maybe the, it's at one point the official party line was, no, don't work for that. We need uh, revolution. Um, well, I know Gabe has thoughts on that, but let me just do a little more script here so there was this idea at one point in the communist party that the black folks should have a separate black state like a black belt and you just, if you use like demographics uh, and you looked at where like high population of black people were that they would have a separate state this is modeled after the soviet union because the soviet union had all these federations of ethnic groups um and uh harry Habel was like a famous black communist i guess famous important i don't know um that sort of pushed forward this idea and uh what else do i want to go before i get your input on that um 
you know, communists were involved in racial justice struggle and were not afraid to talk to black people and made it sort of a priority. And I guess there's this thing that King learns about that Stalin insisted that discrimination by color become a national crime. I guess it was a national crime or something in the USSR for whatever it's worth. And, you know, when you hear that, that kind of resonates with people and that FBI agents could spot uh, white communists by their ease and politeness around black people. And if you would see white people interacting with black people like that was and it, it, they seem like cool and friendly, uh, the FBI spies would think, hmm, maybe this person's a communist is crazy. But, you know different time uh so king uh king knows a lot of king knew some white southerners who converted to communism and this was always like a strange idea to him because he knew a little bit of marx and he kind of opposed the the, some of the rigid ideas i guess of communism and, and marxism but he thought it was cool that these people were against you know segregation and bigotry um Thoughts. So, with, with this chunk of notes, I think you've gone over three things that are all really important, and we can talk about whichever one you want, or talk about each of them in turn, maybe. But I think the well, I did. I so yeah, I'm kind of I brushed through a bunch of stuff because there's Levison, the Communist Party, and race. Um, but even before that, there's the decision to focus on voters. Yeah, that's on voter registration. Yes, which I think is a really important target, but also it's an unbelievably hard target. It becomes frustrating and difficult to right. Address. So, um, Martin Luther King Jr. has helped create a national organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Right? It's a convening of pastors with him and Abernathy at the center of it, but others as well come, mm-hmm. coming in. Um, it's a new organization. It doesn't have an infrastructure. It they're struggling to have any staff or an office or a mimeograph machine or an air conditioner. Right. Uh, they don't have real members either. It's like they, an organization they don't have of members. associated, they have associated affiliated bodies, and, yeah. mainly churches, right? And so the and he he whether he wants to acknowledge it or not, he's effectively in competition with the NAACP, right? And this becomes the, a point of contention right, and problem right. throughout this chapter. So he's got to figure out a way to operate, and the target that they take on is this incredibly important goal of winning the franchise for black people. But unlike the the bus system of the city of Montgomery, this is something which is vested in the power of states all across the South, and not only states, counties and municipalities that oversee elections. It strikes right at the heart of the, the power system of the white supremacist Dixiecrats, right? Uh, around which the all the power of the state culturally and in terms of coercive force and everything is organized. And up against that, they have talking. Mm-hmm. They don't have organizers. They don't have structure. They don't have literature. They don't have anything yet. They have words, and they're good at having conferences, and they're good at articulating things. But they immediately run into this problem that they're not really – they don't have, in a sense, the technology – of movement to take on anything like this. And they, and they King starts getting frustrated pretty quickly because he realizes what he's put together 
isn't well suited to this gigantic task. And it's and if I could go back and uh, talk to Martin Luther King, which I think would be a funny experience, but I would say you didn't have like a magical experience. I mean, you did have a magical experience with the bus boycott. But as we learn from the branch book and everything else, there was all these other little pieces at place in the community, which made that I don't want to say the word easy, but made it plausible with the, you know, uh, the it's, it's in one community. Um, you have these different church groups. You have the organizing through the, the church groups. You have the Highlander Folk School. You have key people like Nixon, uh, Durr. Uh, gray and all those things and so that has been built and it's not really i guess tied together throughout the country yet um so yeah he's and he's frustrated because he kind of wants to just take off to the next step and start doing hardcore voter registration and it's just a bunch of and they're getting very poor results right like bloviators they're they're not they're not getting the outcomes he wants and i think uh branch points out that the black community in Montgomery was in what they didn't realize it until they started it, but they were actually in a very good position to take on the city by withholding their participation in the public transportation mm-hmm. system and obviously their bus fares, right? Uh, all they had to, I mean, it was very challenging to do it. Yeah. We've already discussed, but if they walked and if they carpooled, then they could withdraw themselves and then they could really do damage. Um, but, the voting system, the political system in the South had been designed to exclude black people. So it's not like black people were necessary for the right. functioning of democracy in the South right. as a white as a white supremacist franchise. In fact, that was the point, right? So he's so he's thinking about this and wants this to be a focus of the SCLC, which I don't know if I mentioned in the last episode. Uh, Rustin was the one that said we need to throw the word Christian in there for what it's worth. Um, it was originally the Southern Leadership Conference. Let, let's go back to the communist thing because mm-hmm. I want to talk about Ben Davis, which I said we weren't going to talk about, but I think there's merit in this. Why don't we do? Why don't we do it that way? Why don't we talk about communism and and, and race, and then come back to Levison? Because I think Levison makes more sense as an individual, uh, in terms of his sure. relationship with the party and his his sort of the culture he's coming out of. Yeah, and he's not going to be going away at all. So. Um, so there's this character that actually Levison sort of knows in New York, Ben Davis, and Branch points him out. When I'm reading this, I'm like annoyed with it because it doesn't matter really. But he he uses him as a way to illustrate, I think, poor political choices or a cautionary tale. So Ben Davis is a Morehouse man. He's a he's a, he's a CPUSA guy. He went to Harvard Law School. He becomes a city council member in 1943. He defended a, what I wrote notes on it, was a teenage communist who got a death sentence. I don't know whatever happened to that. This guy, Angelo Herdon. Loyal party man. Um, But he, 1956 is a big important moment in world history because Khrushchev, comes out, he's the head of the CP, the Communist Party in the USSR, comes out and says, hey, Stalin was a bad guy. That's exactly how he did. <laughs> he says there's all these crimes. So the, 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 the point is um, this, the crimes of Stalin are sort of revealed nationally or around the world. And this is a big uh, downer for people that are involved in this worldwide leftist Communist Party movement. So 
the membership drops from 80,000 to about 5,000, give or take something like that. And people in the U.S. who've been loyal for a long time are mean like, what, what do we do now? Like, this has been the organization that has actually been fighting for things and doing things. And Ben Davis is part of this one faction, uh, like the hard line. Like, we do what the party says we should do. And some folks are like, you know what? Uh, first off, the party's a little bit whack. And this doesn't we, we're in this country like we're not going to take orders from what's going on in the Soviet Union or from the goofballs that are still left in this party. So Branch points this out, I guess, because the party's a little bit weird and people are worried about King being associated with these communists. But Ben Davis never leaves the party and he's wedded to the party line. He never changes and he doesn't have much influence and he just looks like kind of like a kook. And there are people important, you know, uh, Paul Robeson is another example of uh, Paul Robeson was a singer. I think he was an actor, too, that a little bit before King's time, more in the 30s and 40s. But he was a loyal Communist Party member and it kind of ruined his life. And he got marginalized and ice out of things. And so tying yourself to this party, and that might have been, that was before, I think, 56, but this was like a, a cautionary tale of like, is the party more important or is the movement and doing the work important? And Ben Davis decided like the party line was more important and he couldn't work with other people and just then was just iced out of participating. I think it's worth sort of taking a, a step back here and saying, well, how can it be that the Communist Party of the USA is, is a significant part of this story? And and why would anyone take this seriously after what we know about Stalinism or even, you know, from our vantage point today after the USSR has disappeared in, mm -hmm. in, into history? But maybe it's worth thinking about um, what you mentioned about Levison's experience in the 30s. That for King for Levison, for all of these people who are interested in social change, the recent model, the experience they have in their minds, because they haven't lived through the 60s yet, <laughs> right. is the 1930s, yeah. right? And it was the powerful social movements of that time that organized workers, that made really intense fights in politics, that were kind of in dialogue with and in tension with the New Deal, that took on fascism, uh, both uh, the Klan and um, racism and xenophobia in the U.S., and also, of course, fascism, fascism overseas, culminating in the, the Spanish Civil War and then the Second World War. They're probably the largest political party, too, of leftists, right, of like the different socialist or racial justice groups. Well, absolutely. And, 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 and the most funding. In, in and the 1930s, the Communist Party has eclipsed the old Socialist Party of America, which A. Philip Randolph had been part of, right? Young people like Bayard Rustin, if they're thinking about social change, if they're thinking about racial justice, if they're thinking about shaking things up, that's the model they have. And to your point... The party is taking these really strong steps to say we are absolutely against racism. We're going to bring people together. We're going to expel someone like Jokinen, the Finnish uh, worker who is insulting the black people. And we're going to make mm -hmm. a big deal in the newspapers right. about expelling him. Um, and they're very intentional about doing this organizing in the South and organizing with groups of workers uh, in urban areas, but also in rural areas. And so they're – 
And then there's the, the international example of the Soviet Union where although there's limited information about what's going on and you could say a very distorted perspective in some ways, it's absolutely the case that so Stalin creates the policy on ethnicity uh, and nationality in the USSR even before he's mm -hmm. the, the, the principal leader of, of the USSR. And he creates a constitution which says that things like racism and anti-Semitism are, are crimes against the state. Right. And so... And who's to argue with that? All, all <laughs> kinds of people who want to see change are intrigued by this, right? And even, even progressive-minded people who quarrel with Stalin are still in some ways in dialogue with mm -hmm. international communism or the Communist Party in this country. So... And that's the environment in which Rustin is is taking shape as an activist, in which Levinson is getting involved, and other others as well. So fast forward, right? J just a, a tiny little aside. Okay. Uh, the book Empire of Pain, which is about the Sackler family and sort of the opioid epidemic, it's the the Sacklers were help create Purdue Pharma. There's three brothers in there. One of those brothers or two of those brothers were briefly a member of the Communist Party. Right, and because they were they were Jewish uh, doctors, and it was like a thing to do in the '30s. Like, oh yeah, this sure. So let's so let's 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 bring Levison in here then, because so how can it be that someone who invests in real estate and buys car dealerships can also be part of the milieu of the Communist Party? Right. Well, partly it could be simply ideals, beliefs. Right. It could also be that. Um, there's strong ethnic affinities, right? There are particular groups of Americans, mm -hmm. including in the black community, where there was really strong-rooted organization in some places, but also other particular ethnic groups. Finns are one, Yokinen, for example, mm -hmm. right? Um, and also the Jewish community, that there were groups of Jews, not all Jews, not all Jews on the list right. even, but there were very strong cultural organizations um, and networks of Jews on the left in and around the Communist Party. And so, as a young person, it would, might make perfect sense to Levison that this is a place to do politics, where at the same time, I'm participating in business ventures. And then the third reason is it's actually useful to the party, mm -hmm. right? That if everyone is an intellectual with their, his head in the clouds, or everyone is a worker um, organizing her trade union, then you actually don't have some of the expertise and structures that, and uh, practices you need to organize all the political activities, especially once you go on the defensive and you have to raise money for lawsuits and you have to set up ways to move money, um, which is not right, immediately right. traceable by the FBI and so on. And so he becomes, people like him become instrumental to helping the, the party. Even, But it, he has, he's not a Ben Davis though type. Well, well this is, this is, Actually, this it's, is it's just unclear. what I was going to say. It's he, unclear if he's even ever really a member. He seems to be an independent minded person and not uh, a doctrinaire Stalinist maybe ever or certainly by the time he's mature and yet he retains these relationships and he's sort of part of the milieu of milieu uh, uh, you don't like the way I say that I think I like I like the way I say it better I say milieu go for it you say it again milieu milieu okay, okay. Well, the listeners can decide uh, sorry he's 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 in the room with the leaders of the party who are trying to figure out how to 
save themselves from all going to jail. Right. Um, he's raising money and helped setting up the legal defense for the Rosenbergs and then for the party leadership and so on. What, what, what Even else? though he's not himself really in the discipline of the party, but the relationships go back so far, it's kind of a natural place for him to be. He and um, he and Rustin and Randolph and Fostek form this group called In Friendship, which sounds like such a great organization, great name. And what do they do? Uh, they they've raised funds for victims of uh, lynchings. I mean, just that's the kind of world we were living in that these people are like, well, let's do something to try to help. So uh, people are like families and stuff like that. So that was that's the group in friendship. And that's the Rustin Randolph Fostek uh, right. left some time. And, and one of the ways they that- had concerts, by the way, Harry yep. Belafonte, Duke mm-hmm. Ellington. Credit credit King um, to like raise money for these things that are happening for Emmett Till the Emmett Till lynching. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's really interesting about Levison about his um, unorthodox ideas about organizing is that he's rejecting some of the early very doctrinaire positions of the party, like doing anything around integration as a mistake because integration is simply justifying the bourgeois political structures. He's listening to black activists and he's trying to provide logistical support and help with strategy and behind the scenes work um, around projects which um, have black leadership who are are not communists. So he's this interesting figure who's prepared to uh, listen to people, see good ideas and get involved and support it even if the party isn't telling him to. And it's, it's why ultimately he and then uh, King, as his as his friend, come to see someone like Ben Davis as a tragic figure, someone who's really so trapped by his ideology and his experiences and his antagonism um, to the opponents of the Communist Party that he becomes marginalized. And I get the sense that he's more of a quiet person or not a dynamic, charismatic, you know, guy because Branch doesn't go and say any stories about that or his speaking ability. He seems like a guy that's more cerebral offering suggestions, listening, a great listener, very patient, um, and hits it off with King very very well. Now I'm going to move on to the prayer, prayer pilgrimage for freedom now. So frustrated with Ike's negligence or not doing anything, so uh, the SCLC, and really I think this is King's instigation with Levinson and Rustin, is to have this prayer pilgrimage for freedom to Washington, to D.C. And the idea is, if the president cannot come to the South to relieve our um, harassed people, we shall have to lead our people to you, into the Capitol, in order to call the nation's attention to the violence and organized terror. So, uh, Rustin's involved, Levison. There's more church bombings in Montgomery. Uh, I Branch writes that Eisenhower is like kind of pro-civil rights, I guess. But he wants to take it easy. He doesn't want to push it. I think I mentioned this in the other show that uh, he's uncomfortable around black people for the uh, most I, part. Eisenhower really does not come out well from this chapter. He, okay. like, you really he get says, the sense that he used the civil rights issue to discredit Stevenson and sort of split the Democrats to win re-election. But now he's really avoiding taking any position at all and, and supporting he's quoted as He's quoted as saying, uh, you can't legislate morality. And then I don't know if King says it or not, but uh, well, King has a great response to that. Yeah, a law may not make man love me, but it can stop him from lynching me. Maybe not in that tone, but yeah, it is a great response. And then some of uh, Ike's 
staff hear him like making n-word jokes in private and like rolling their eyes and like come on buddy like even in that that time period like his like this is ridiculous like come on so i'm gonna take a pause we're gonna jump to another place that's okay because we still got a lot of ground to cover and we're gonna go on a little journey to the continent of africa why not gabe's been to africa uh gabe have you ever been to ghana no. Okay, so King goes to Ghana. And, okay, we're talking about world history. There's this big national liberation movement. Ghana was once a colony of the British Empire. And No, is that right? Yes, Yes. yes. And then famous liberation leader becomes president. Kwame Nkrume um, becomes the president there. And there's a big sort of summit party of world leaders. King goes there, as does from the early teaser Nixon. And so um, there's a big focus on... Who at first looks pretty good compared to other politicians. And this kind of has an important impression on King because when he comes back, he talks about like national liberation and we're breaking down the walls of colonialism, of exploitation, imperialism. And he says to the point that no man will trample over another man and that all men will respect the dignity and worth of all human personality. That this is tying in, you know, the segregate, ending segregation, the bus boycott and what, what's going forward to what's happening around the globe. Um, he also mentions that... Um, and what does he say here? And we will be in Canaan's freedom land. Moses might not get to see Canaan, but his children will see it. Um, so then he meets Richard Nixon, as Gabe says. I'm glad you done your reading. He's receptive. <laughs> He's receptive. Uh, and, you know, King, King's kind of like, I I could not meet with him in the, in, you know, in the U.S., but I'm meeting him here, and he's he's kind of down with talking, and you know, let's meet up when you get back to the U.S. Um, so he gives a report back when he gets to Dexter. Dexter, by the way, helped pay for this uh, journey over to Africa. Um, Nixon says, "Yeah, you know what? Let's do it." But King's like, "We're gonna we're gonna meet, but I don't want to do it until after the the pilgrimage, the big rally that we're gonna have in D.C." Um, Oh, and then you got this NW, the NAACP is kind of not into this this p- prayer pilgrimage. They're more, again, fair criticism, I think, of legal maneuvers, fundraising. I mean, you got to have the legal stuff. But when if we keep it just to Roy Wilkins, like if you keep it to voting rights, fine. But I don't really like marches. So. King agrees to only discuss voting rights at the rally and no mention of do not talk about desegregating the schools, King. Let's just keep it to voting rights. okay? Um, so the leaders of uh, in friendship and the SCLC. So Levison, Rustin, they're doing all this organizing. Rustin's doing yeoman's work. Is that what they call it? You know, organizing uh, church basement pep talks. Wilkins working. I like this term. The inside game. Because he's actually as more respected. He's like the more black aristocracy. I don't know what you want to say. And I do kind of like this little thing where he makes, maybe he even believes it. I don't think so. He's talking to the administration because they like, I don't know what the jurisdictional thing, and not to get it too much inside baseball. They're like, this rally's not going to happen. This is too crazy. We can't have all these black people coming and demanding stuff. And somehow Thurgood Marshall, one of the attorneys 
future Supreme Court uh, justice says, don't worry about that first rate rabble rouser king. We got him under control. You let us have this rally. It'll be just about voting rights. It's good. You know, you want us to be part of this. If not, it's going to get out of hand, basically. And so Ike's team works with these folks and says, okay, you know, that's fine. We, you can have it, which that seemed a little weird to me, but I, I don't think it's so strange. I mean, look, the, so the NAACP, uh, which we, discussed- well, no, it wasn't strange. The the NAACP in the King dispute. What was strange was the dialogue kind of occurring within the administration. That, that's what I thought so, was like kind so, of, so, well, I don't, here's why I think it's not strange that, the example of the Montgomery bus boycott and the presence of this brand new organization with this young um, intellectual uh, leader who has been on the cover of Time magazine, it causes a problem for Wilkins and his organization, right? We've talked about that. But Roy Wilkins, head of the NAACP. It also creates a foil for him. So he can say to the Eisenhower administration, he can say to people in Congress, look, we are the ones who painstakingly work our way through the courts to advocate for the rights of our people. These people are leading demonstrations, which in turn lead to bombings We're and violence. We're not them. We're not those people, right? We're the people who are working within the system, right? The way that American democracy is designed to be set up, we're going through the courts to make our case. We have people like Thurgood Marshall, who are doing this um, really important work, but we're we're doing it in a way where we're in suits and ties in in courtrooms instead of in the streets. Branch says these are the business-like wing of the Negro movement. So this is, they're able to show themselves as respectable. They're, they insist that they're they're making the case for the changes they want, but they have an entire strategy worked out about how this is going to happen through a legal process. And I think that becomes a kind of a backdoor selling point for Wilkins to maintain influence, mm-hmm. to say, look, these people are going to create a backlash. These people are going to create trouble in the streets. We're the ones who you should talk to. So this rally is scheduled for May 17th, 1957. And while they're working on, uh, King's working on the speech with Bayard Rustin. And I love this little scene here where he's reading a speech and he says at this point, give us the ballot. And Rustin says, listen, man, you can't say give us the ballot. You say we demand the ballot. And MLK says, uh, that doesn't sit right on my tongue. And Rustin says, what you're saying falls like a pile of dirt, man. You got to be more bold and say, demand, we demand the ballot. And then that's where MLK says, well, Baird, I don't mind you criticizing my ideas, but I don't like you criticizing my words because I'm better at words than you are. And that's probably true. <laughs> um, so there's this big rally on May 17th. There's celebrities there like Jay-Z, Beyonce, Kanye, Drake, Bruno Mars. <laughs> oh, God, I'm such a goof. Okay. So, but there are, you know, local, like, national celebrities. Sammy Davis Jr., Ruby D., Sidney Portier, Harry Belafonte, Mahala Jackson. And he does say, give us the ballot in his big speech. It's aired on the radio. It seems to make a big impact. They have then... Uh, you know, it's covered in the press. The press love it. It sounds great. Um, and Rustin has to admit to himself, well, King was right. When it comes to communicating, King is <laughs> right. really good at this. Right, right. He's good at it. Uh, so then they have this meeting with Nixon. And this is funny, too. Uh, if you were, if you didn't know anything about history and you're like, just starting here, you would be like, what? Or you, you, or you wouldn't know how crazy this is. So he meets with Richard Nixon. It's Rustin and Levison are drilling him. 
you know, training him on or uh, how to have this conversation. You know, we want federal action on uh, voting rights, integration. We want a statement on violence. Please. We want people stopped to being killed. Um, they cautioned him not to take a political stance, Democrat, Republican, and just, you know, stick to these points. So they wanted Ike to come. I'm going to call him Ike Eisenhower. Uh, they wanted him to come to the South and, you know, make a spiel. And so Nixon comes in. The meeting it lasts, or it's supposed to last 45 minutes. It lasts two hours. Nixon comes across as like super genuine, which from King's previous experience of him in Ghana, he's not surprised. And he says, um, I would say that Nixon has a genius for co- convincing one that he is sincere. When you are close to Nixon, he almost disarms you with his apparent sincerity. And so I would conclude by saying that if Richard Nixon is not sincere, he's the most dangerous man in America. <laughs> I I think Taylor Branch, obviously Taylor Branch is writing this in the 80s. Taylor Branch, as a young person, campaigned to try to beat Richard Nixon, right? Mm-hmm. We know he's got a view of Richard Nixon. Right. He's engaging in a, a extraordinary amount of restraint and choosing these, how he portrays this. I, I think he's also probably trying to understand Nixon here because I mean, what what I come away with reading this is a sense of Nixon who had had this kind of meteoric career from congressman to U.S. senator mm-hmm. to vice president. He's still young, mm-hmm. right? He's already planning on becoming president. And Nixon is trying to sort of like trying on for size different coalitions and different messages and different ways to, to work. Nixon is this unbelievably gifted sort of politician, but... King has this insight about him sort of on a moral character. Like right. He is he will lean in for two hours and he's either with us or he's right. a demon. Right. And and actually Nick's uh, Branch says that Nixon tells Ike that, hey, uh, I kinda like King. Um they said they voted Republican in 1956. They kind of told us, they like whispered that to us. They don't want us, you know. Um, and he said, You should speak with him. He's not a hothead. He's a guy that believes in nonviolence. Like um. So, 1957. We're and and again, just, just just a footnote on yeah. that, right? At this time, the natural historic party of black people was the Republican Party. We know that Franklin Roosevelt put a big dent in that because even though the Democratic Party was essentially the party of the white supremacists by and large, and Roosevelt himself um, was not interested in civil rights at all, just all of the social programs of the New Deal persuaded a lot of black people who could vote where they did have, have places where they could vote to support the Democrats. But I think Branch has already written that uh, mm-hmm. that Daddy King is a Republican. Right, right. All of his friends are Republicans. It's the party of Lincoln. So now we get into a part that was the most difficult thing for my uh, feeble brain to understand, which was the 1957 Civil Rights Bill. And I, I'm trying to dumb this down for the readers, and we are going to talk about it, but in a sense, uh, in a short thing, it's not that important. <laughs> but it is. I mean, me and Gabe can agree to disagree. But there's all these little tiny moving parts. It's so complicated. I actually called in another expert that I might supplement into this show to explain cloiture. Cloiture? Is that the word? Closure. Closure filibuster um and at the end of the day the civil rights bills this is the 1957 civil rights bill which is a little bit of a political football and important for 
you know, people getting elected and all that. So this was, um, so here's what I'm going to just remark on it and we can talk or not talk. I could care less because I hate it. <laughs> so this is one of the bills that's, um, it gets, it's LBJ's sort of baby, sort of, but Ike wants to take credit for it. Senate, there's Senate debates about this. People don't want to talk about race. Isn't that funny? Let's not talk about race. Let's not talk about what's going on in this country. So they really didn't want to talk about it, but it gets forced on the national stage. Strom Thurmond is a senator. He breaks the filibuster record. You go, Strom. You go, buddy. Holding the floor for 24 hours to try to like not let this thing go through. LBJ, Lyndon Bain. What's his middle name? Nobody knows. Baines. Okay, you know. Johnson, he's a Texas majority leader. Worked to pass the bill. Um... And it would appear like it's going to be more his than Ike's. He LBJ really whittles it down for some reason. And I tried to find this out and I failed the listeners. But organized labor is against this bill because something with hold on. Um, there was an amendment that guaranteed the right of jury trials in certain instances that would that they were against because. Wait, labor supported an amendment that that would guarantee the right of a jury trial to state officials accused of violating court orders of voting rights. Something about the vote that they didn't like because um, the jury trials were not going to be helpful for black folks because they would always go against, uh, you know, uh, local people in the South were racist, so they wouldn't get it. So this was somehow going to remove the power for other issues that labor was against. I, I still don't know. understand so- it. I think this is a situation. One more thing. Yep. So the, what it looked like was, um, it was like, uh, this is weird, but it's like Ike and the NAACP versus LBJ, Southerners, and organized labor. The bill does pass, and Nixon denounces it as, um, like Nixon even takes a stand here that like what they're doing is a vote against the right to vote. Like he's saying like whittling this thing down is bad. So for whatever reason... But the bill does pass, and and I want you to uh, pontificate in a second. Wilkins is extremely excited about this, and he has a right to be, because this is really the first time something has happened. The most important part of this is that there's a civil rights commission established. There are some protections, which I don't think do anything. So we can say there's no protections, but there's something on paper. Uh, but the most important thing, most, man, I talked too loud there, is um, probably not even the Civil Rights Commission, but that it's symbolic. And then the other thing that's important is King sees, huh, this was a big waste of time. <laughs> he doesn't, maybe he doesn't say that. That's what I'm filtering through King. Um, King says, you know what? We can't place our faith in white institutions. <laughs> this is not what we need to be working on. And um, oddly enough, I know we talked about the SCLC, but it's like finally officially established after this. But uh, let's, Go back a little bit. Well, I think complicated. The, yeah, I think the, I think the law is important. I, the, our, our focus on the labor movement within the bill and its lobbying position may, may be as obscure to listeners yes. as our interest in the Communist Party. Well, the only reason why that is is because, like, I don't know. You just tend to think that the labor movement, regardless of where you are yeah. in time, is going to be a force of and, somewhat progress. And, and so. broadly speaking, the labor movement was a, an ally to civil rights legislation. But here's a situation where the the particular interest of unions organizing and, and leading strikes in the South um, cuts across this really important goal 
for the legislation. You could say this happened in, although not in terms of national um, uh, legislation, but th this came up in in many more local and state debates around Black Lives Matter and defund the police. Mm -hmm. One of the goals of Black Lives Matter, for example, has been to take away um, sort of statutory protections for police. Mm -hmm. And organized labor has said, well, wait a minute, what about other public employees, right? right? right. If you do that, does this allow uh, other people to who are not police to be uh, at risk? Um, and and so it, it creates a, um, a division in an attempt to try to get a progress. I think that's what's happening here. Um, but it's, I think it's a really interesting moment for the, for the main reason that you highlight, though, because you, you have to make a decision about, well, look, um, is this uh, so weak that it's worse than meaningless? Or is this the breaking of the wall? that this is the beginning right. of what's going to come next. And it seems like uh, Wilkins sees it that way. And I think King is actually convinced that it's, it's important, even though they're bitterly right. disappointed. Yeah, it seems like they're, it is both. It is actually both things. And if I was back in that time, I would say it's meaningless. I'd be so frustrated. It would be so disheartening. But at the same time, it is the first time right. something happened. So we're going to... I want to take a musical break here because... What did we talk about earlier with the music? Um... We are going to listen to a song. Well, before I get to that, SCLC is created, and they have a goal of registering two, as Gabe said before, two million voters before the 1960 election. But let's take a break here. We're going to listen to Charles Mingus, Fables of Phobos. Thank you. 
All right. So September 4th, uh, this all-white high school, nine students. This is in um, Little Rock, Arkansas. Is that where it is? Nine students are going to head there. And uh, troops, nine black students, and then uh, troops block the kids from going to school. What kind of society is this? Kids are trying to go to school, and there's troops there saying, like, no, you can't enter. Why can't they enter? Why can't they enter the school? What's the biggest reason why they can't? Maybe they're not that smart. No, because they're black. This is freaking ridiculous. Anyways, so this becomes a national scene because there's a riot that ends up occurring, and TV now exists. So it looks bad for America. And the governor, Orville Faubus, F-A-U-B-U-S, Faubus, Fubus, he is known as sort of like a moderate governor on race relations, but then digs in hardcore on this, is like, no, no black people are going to this school. This is not happening. So he meets with Ike, President Eisenhower, and there's this back and forth, and Ike's under the impression that there's an agreement and these kids can go to school. Uh, and I'm sorry, and then this, but then he goes back on it publicly on like TV and saying like, no, because he's kind of torn. He wants to look strong. And then when he's talking to the president, he says another thing. So Ike is like, uh-uh. I mean, as much as Ike kind of sucks, can I say that on national <laughs> on a podcast um he's like no this is ridiculous Th- these kids are going to school he sends in the army uh which is cool but also really sad and pathetic if you think about it but the army does a good job they act they follow these kids all through the school make sure nothing is happening to them and i highly recommend i don't know if it's episode two or three of eyes on the prize they do a really good job of covering this and ike essentially neuters Fobus like he should and you know this was a big issue that branch covers in like two pages, which I was disappointed in. <laughs> um, but this just is kind of, I guess, symbolic of what's ha- happening at the time. Um, just, just a thought on on Fabus here, because as, as you, were, I thought it was very well summed up. So Fabus is a moderate. Fabus is someone who is maybe progressive on some issues. Fabus is someone who is not, perhaps, personally. Um, totally fixated on 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 race mm-hmm. but he's a politician he's, he's a successful politician within the white supremacist political regime of his state which is arkansas all of the incentives are on the side of going with the mob exactly and you're going to find out don't, sorry to interrupt you that i get upset because i read these futures history of some of these governors and they all a lot of them are like, yeah, sorry about that. And I'm like, you don't get to do that. Well, but they, they basically like, well, what was I supposed to do? Yeah. And then they vote right, for Obama. Right. It's like, ugh. well, right. So, right. I mean, you could, you could tell a story about George Wallace in Alabama in, 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 in similar ways. Yep. We'll get to him. It, my point is not to excuse it. Right. But it's really important, especially when we think about uh, politics in this country in 2021, when all of the incentives are on one side, it really takes an an outlier politician to go against that. And side. let's let's put a pin on that thought because there is this other minor character, Ben West, I think his name that does a little different, but maybe the context is different there uh, in Nashville. I think. Uh, okay, so King meets up with everybody's favorite preacher, Billy Graham. 
You might hear a baby screaming. Who knows? Um, I remember when I was in high school, Billy Graham came to Pittsburgh, and my neighbor, who was not religious at all, went to go see him speak because she was like, yeah, he's having a big thing at Three River Stadium. And I was Catholic. I'm like, why would you do that? I go to church every Sunday. It's boring. And you're going to pay to go see? Anyways. Wait, hold on one second. Did you say something? Wait, did she call me? I can't hear anything. I can't tell if she's calling them, and I'm just hearing it through the headphones. Okay, who cares? We'll keep going. Don't worry about it. Um, so King meets up with Billy Graham, super big evangelical uh, preacher. And Graham is kind of neutral on race. He's cool with segregationists. He's cool with King. And I think at one point they do some joint action together. But he wants to push him on race. And Graham's like, you know what? Let's just not go there. And let's just agree to be friends. But I'm not going to do that. And King, to his, to, to whatever, he sort of accepts that and says, we'll stick to the Jesus talk, but I'm not really going to foster this relationship anymore. I'm disappointed in you, but so be it. Right. He's hopeful because there was this particular sermon with this line, there's no color line in heaven. Yes, yes. But but Graham's whole purpose to be is to win more people to evangelical Protestantism, and he wants to be able to do outreach all across the South, and he's not you can't do that and also right. be attacking white supremacy in the south why this is important to me or what, why this is interesting is cuz then he tr- king tries to turn the nbc the national baptist convention the black the largest black group in the country into an activist group and he sees an opportunity because this guy jh jackson who's the head of it is about to leave and he's like oh we can maybe turn this into a great organization for voter registration and kind of chip away and start to make some moves there but bum, 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 jackson's like no i'm staying we can't be doing this i'm not into that i don't know what the reasons it's just it's crappy <laughs> and um king i don't know if he comments or it's it's he, there's a point where branch writes that oh preachers close to king say that listen Billy Graham is more likely to embrace civil rights than J.H. Jackson, which probably is not true, but it's just a point like how... Jackson's a small-c conservative, and he's authoritarian, and he wants to continue to run this big church organization... A black church leader. ...the way that he wants to, right. Look, I mean, as as we've discussed in the previous chapters, there are all kinds of ways to be a very successful and effective uh, black pastor without having to provoke bus boycotts and jackson is not down for this i i think it's wonderful that, that this is part of the story because yeah, I he, do too. here's king trying to figure out well what do i do next well it might look i'm a baptist my father's a baptist what if we could just get use Billy our, 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 our we'll baptist get, yeah, our national church get, structure right. to to lead a freedom struggle and the hierarchy says nope not gonna do it right so this thing is called they may come up with the SCLC calls this voter registration drive the crusade for citizenship which is a modified version of Billy Graham's just crusade which I think is kind of cool um, King's not happy with SCLC he says they're behaving I don't know if he says it but the, this idea of like they're behaving like a council of barons long-winded sp- uh, this resonated with me. If anyone's ever been to any political meetings or union meetings or just meetings in general or family gatherings, long-winded speeches of cross-pollinated tribute to deliberative posturing and to work to a work process consisting largely of decrees 
delegations and postponements. Oh, I get so mad when I hear that. I just think like I can just see King just like making fists and be like, oh, come on. So he's preaching it. Am I getting family drama in this? So he preaches at Dexter. He's feeling bad. He's fallen behind on his Dexter duties. Uh, and he's kind of all over the place in this one speech that Branch brings up, which I really like because it humanizes him big time. He's angry. He blames segregationists. He says, you know, God, God, he's, it's kind of funny. He goes, you know, everyone knows that God is, uh, he's not a Negro. Therefore, Negro is not a man. Like kind of making fun of or just saying how preposterous that is. He brings up the curse of ham. Curse of ham? Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Um, where Noah got drunk and this is where there's a found, there's like a biblical foundation for racism. Um, then he talks about Negro or black people, not self-improvement issues. Well, right. This is the most insidious, uh, argument for racism and also for colonialism, which is the the, the ham thing. No, this last one where he says, okay, wait, let me just, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So he's like, he's calling on, um, black people that are saying like, you know, we have a high crime rate or there's illegitimacy. That is oppression is no excuse for this. Wait a second. Yeah. Cause but, you're, I think you're saying something right. different. No, no, no. That's what he is saying. But why is he saying that? Why is, why, why is he doing this routine? Which, you know, for example, we've seen more recently someone like Bill Cosby doing pull up your pants. I was thinking thing, about the same right? thing. Yeah. So, well, because the racist argument, it's the third of the racist arguments that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. It was also an argument for colonialism and maintaining uh, European domination in, say, Africa and other places. But it goes like this. Well, of course, we want these people to stand on their own two feet and be fully part of the family of nations, but they're not ready yet. They need to be tutored. Mm -hmm. They need to be protected from their own excesses. We need to keep a Sort of like a hand on their shoulder or a hand on their neck. Wait, are you saying you think? Are you saying at this part, King is saying that because then no, he, because King, then he attaches. No, 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 no. King, King is struggling with this argument because he feels like when it because the, then he attacks the, the racists will say, "Look, the black people are not ready to rule themselves. Look at the drunkenness. Look at the disorder. Right. Look at the juke joints. Look at the knife fights." And this stings because King knows what poverty looks like. Right, For his earliest memories are what's happening uh, in his his home city during yeah, the Yeah, I, I felt like and he so was talking... he's starting to lecture black people okay, about right. look, doing the equivalent of pull up your pants. Okay, that's be what, respectable. Right. Sh- let's show the world we're we're ready. In, in other words, instead of saying to hell with you, that's a racist argument. Right, you don't lecture white people about their behavior. And by the way, all white people get to vote. Yes, what are you talking? Instead of saying that, he's being a little defensive here. And he attacks the black professional class, saying that black teachers, some of them aren't great. And he complains of this uh, Alpha Phi Alpha, what is it? What is that up? Fraternities Fraternity. spending, you know, thousands of dollars on liquor. So it's a little window into his frustrations and just kind of struggling with that. So SCLC needs help. But they're not doing right. great. So they get Ella Baker. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think Branch does the greatest job of a little bio he does with other people, but we're going to get more on that. Am I wrong? No, there should be more on Baker. There should be more on Baker, and it's shame on you, Taylor Branch, but you know what? This is still a great book. So, And, and there is a bunch. She's not going away at all. Uh, so she's kind of made um, 
the secretary of the organization. She doesn't get the Vernon Johns treatment, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah. So she is the true workhorse of the organization. She's a black lady. She's from New York. Um, she's just a secretary. No, 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 no. This woman is like working her butt off. Um, and how does she get in the organization? Through Rustin and Levison. They know her from In Friendship. In Friendship's the fundraising group for people that are lynched. She joins the NAACP in 1940. She became a legend for her prowess in organizing youth chapters in the South. She's the first woman to hold NAACP office in New York. She kind of then becomes this civil rights nonprofit consultant. Like, and then King and the SELC balk at her getting involved in the organization. Like, nah, we can't have this woman. And Rustin and Levinson, I don't know if they put, one of them does. Like, no, we, we need her. She's what, this is exactly what we need. Um, and they say, listen, we can get her on the cheap. We can get New York somehow to pay for her. Um, and she can be the acting director which they keep using this acting thing. And it just screams of sexism. It's just so dumb. But in the same way, she's going to be an important part of this story. So she goes to Atlanta. She starts working uh, on this crusade for citizenship. citizenship and there's a rally uh, in Atlanta. She runs it. And then there's another director, her boss, I guess. But he seems like a do-nothing. And he ends up getting fired. This guy, Tilly, sounds incompetent. More tension is now developing between Wilkins and King. And as Gabe talked about before, you know, I think Wilkins is like, what are you doing here? Like, this is our thing. We're doing this. And King's always like graceful about it. The way Branch writes it anyways. Um, hold on a second. So we'll just pause there. I don't, I don't even not to go into that because we have so much other ground to cover. So, Okay. Oh, there was this thing with Ike's. I don't want to cover that, but there was things with some of Ike's staff were meeting with the leaders of SCLC and pushing forward stuff. And the staff was like, I don't want to do this anymore. This is too stressful. We don't have to talk about that. I just mentioned it. Okay. So big news, big boring news, but it's not boring. Big action movie. We're back into the action. Abernathy's almost killed. <laughs> I uh, kind of just threw that out of nowhere. So Ralph Abernathy is for real killed. <laughs> like, yeah, for real, almost killed. So when I said to you earlier, which person almost is killed? Well, he's almost killed by a husband of a woman is that accuses him of having an affair or some unnatural sex or something like that. So this guy comes into his office in the church with a meat cleaver and swings it at him, chases him out of there. And, he's and like, a gun. Oh, and, and it turns out he has a gun, too. Um you know, and this is kind of playing into the stereotypes of preachers, the, the the bad part of like some sort of leaders, preachers and sex and, and money and all that stuff. And oddly enough, this is actually going to help the civil rights movement. So in a weird roundabout way, Gabe's looking at me like, hmm, is it? But he may follow this. So so he goes. So the guy is now charged. What is his name? I didn't write it down. Uh, who cares? So Abernathy has to appear in court for this trial and King goes down to support his buddy. It's kind of making national news and thank God for these dumb, dumb police officers and their racism because they 
for no reason at all. It's not clear at all, but they just, King's like in line to get in. They don't like him or something. They pull him aside and actually there's the media there. So they take some really classic pictures. Go to Google, Google it. You can see it. He's got his hat on and he's got his suit. They pull his arm back, kind of like rough him up. And now King is in jail, uh, you know, and it's like a man of peace just going there to support his friend. This isn't jiving. So there's a big rally that occurs at the Dexter Church while King's in jail. He's refusing to pay the fine. Um, And people are like now no longer focused on Abernathy and this possible sex scandal or the murder thing. But they're like, man, they're putting our leader in jail again. This is ridiculous. And old Clyde Sellers, that POS, not the dumbest person in the, in the world, though. What does he do? He pays King's fine because King's like, I'm not paying no fine. I'm not paying this. This is absolutely preposterous. And they let him out. And King's like p- mad. Like, what? Oh, Clyde Sellers pays your fine like your arch enemy down here. Um, so to diffuse the situation, to diffuse the situation. Martyr, right. right. And um, in a way, it, it, it kind of helps take the, the the thing off of uh abernathy any comments on that i don't want to dwell on it too long but no that's i think that i think it's a good summation that it's both an example of i mean clearly from what we have here abernathy has taken advantage of his position as this really powerful leader to have an extramarital affair mm-hmm. and it's been confronted and the media is about to descend on this and do a story about uh, infidelity sex and, blah, and church blah, blah, yeah. and and not just that but hypocrisy right. right which could be a poison for this movement which is all about a moral purpose and then the police change the story um and then the other thing um by, by attacking king the, the other thing that branch points out which i think is really interesting is how the trial itself starts to um polarize the community to defend Abernathy and and defend King and defend the um, Montgomery Improvement Association and and by extension the SCLC, he points out that it's very hard or impossible in America when race is on the line for there to be one agreed upon set of facts. Yeah. That made me think about my experience when I was a student working in an office um, during the OJ trial. Mm. And my coworkers who were white and my coworkers who were black right, right. had a completely different right. view of what were just the fundamental questions at stake in the trial. And it seemed like this. And in this situation, frankly, Abernathy himself and the movement benefit from this polarization, which then the police play into. Uh, we're going to go now to Stride, Stride Towards Freedom comes out. And Branch does not really go into the writing of this book that Bearing the Cross by David Garrow goes into. Uh, but it be, get, the Garrow book says that King remarks this is the most difficult thing he ever has done of writing this book. And that the two people that are helping him write it are Levison and Rustin. And he's sending, they go back and forth about sending things back, you know, and trying to, what, this happened during the bus boycott. And uh, so that book comes out. King's popular book. He's on Time, Time Magazine, as we mentioned. He goes to New York City for a book signing. And I cannot believe I found this boring as well. <laughs> but, oh, it's so dumb. Okay, what I'm about to say is Martin Luther King almost gets murdered. Oh, how can that not be? How can that not be exciting? I mean, it's crazy. So what happens is he's in New York City. He's in Harlem. He's stabbed by an African-American woman with a knife and it almost ruptures 
his largest vessel near his chest. And people, the, 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 he goes to surgery. The people say if, if he would have coughed or sneezed or laughed or whatever, um, the knife would have probably uh, ruptured his aorta and blood would have spilled out and he would have been dead. And the woman that did this, this is why this... And as a medical professional, you could say cutting the aorta is pretty yeah, serious. Yeah. yeah, he definitely would have been dead. Um, even if that happens like today, like you don't have a lot of time. But what is so, ugh, so irritating about this? First off, it's horrible that this happened. But it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit into the narrative. But then I got to thinking about this for a second. So it doesn't fit because this is a Catholic woman. She's psychotic. She is mentally it's like, ill. It's not a political act at all. It's, it's a, not a political act at all. It's a black Catholic woman who has decided that he is a problem in her life. Okay. But I, I'm going to tie this into sort of why it maybe fits. So it doesn't fit because she's not a racist. She's not like some, we're attacking this guy that's leading this movement. It has nothing to do with him being a crusader for justice and freedom. And it's more because he's a celebrity. Yes. It's because he's a celebrity and there probably is stuff in the celebrity culture of demonizing him. And not to get topical, but the one thing, the closest thing I could come up with um, is the Tree of Life shooting in our own town. And I thought, like, there's stuff in the media where crazy people start thinking things and they act on it. And that's the only thing I could say, that King is a victim not of a, because he's a racial justice crusader and all that, but because he's a celebrity. And, you know, he's been demonized and all that. I, I think there's a really important distinction, though. I, I think you've got that one a bit wrong. Well, I I don't mean... I'll probably agree with what you're going to say. Right. Go ahead. That the the gunman who carried out the massacre at the Tree of Life was participating in ideological sure. uh, online discussion about uh, immigration, and, immigration yeah. and the power of the Jews undermining America. He was an ideological anti-Semite, and he was in a discourse about, well, what actions can we take um, that build the movement and, he, and sure. he says ultimately i have to do this to save america i don't care about the optics right he's a political actor um so yeah i, I guess you could say she's more he's less crazy i guess right and i, I mean i i would and not to um take this off in another direction but i think it's a it's a kind of a it's a political mistake to say someone like him or the killer um in Charleston, South Carolina, who went into the, the other Mother Emanuel Church, Emmanuel church to Ruth. say, who, we just can't understand these crazy people. You're those, right. Those people are fascists. This woman is mentally ill. And th yeah, th fair point. And fair it point. happens sometimes in history. Like um, one of the art in South Africa, right? One of the architects of uh, apartheid, call back to a previous podcast where you didn't like how I pronounced a word, um, <laughs> where his name was Favord. Um, and he's a really powerful leader who is, establishes and helps cement the apartheid state. And then he's murdered for no political reason. He's murdered by someone with mental illness. Right. It's just a terrible situation. Right, right. That's why I don't I mean, like this because it like doesn't fit with the narrative. Yeah. And it's like this weird aside. And it's occasionally this happens. Well, in this history, happens. Right? Yeah. But basically victim of his uh, because he's a celebrity. Right. I don't want to say victim of. But she had a gun, too. So she could have killed him. She had a gun in her purse and she didn't deny. It. And then what does King do? He says, I forgive her. <laughs> I right. forgive her. You know, she's. I feel bad for her. I'm just checking here. Favord, who was killed in '66, wasn't killed by a black person. He was killed by a Greek immigrant. Right. Uh, nothing to do with apartheid. Nothing to do with South African politics. Just random, random right. stuff. SCLC needs a new director because Tilly's 
terrible. Uh, Ella Baker is frustrated with him. Um, and she's like kind of frustrated with the whole preacher world. Um, yeah, she, she, I have she, 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 she is really smart about this particular dysfunction that the kind of personality and the kind of, uh, really the, the competencies that are excellent at communicating to a big mass of people are not the same things that you need for organizing necessarily or for building an organization. And she, and of course, on top of it, as you point out, is the sexism that they expect a, a leader looks like them, right? Yeah. And the, they keep bringing her in because they need her, but they want to make her the acting director. I'm going to jump around here because that's what Branch does, so I apologize. Um, so there, there was a little Nixon insight that he had uh, that Branch says that Nixon wanted tax credits for tuition to paid to private schools. Um, this doesn't really fit in, but I just do find it interesting. He wanted to reach a growing number of people that were going that way, but struggled to afford it because they were middle class. And Branch writes that, you know, Nixon wanted the Republicans to run on. <laughs> this is great. He wanted Republicans to run on what he called the erosion of the middle class by appealing to resentment against social leveling and perceived loss of privilege. Why this is so funny and why Ike is correct is this is the most prosperous time in world history. Mm. Literally. Literally in world history, this is the most booming economy ever. Um, and Ike says, listen, this is the booming economy. The middle class is not disappearing. In fact, it's growing. So Nixon, you're, you're nutso. Um, and Nixon says, you know, I don't know. No, no, no. Branch says something to the effect of Nixon's getting less into civil rights and more of a uh, demographer. Well, look, th I think this is an interesting this is, moment. This because is Branch, like, uh, you know, getting at Nixon a little bit. He's getting some. at Nixon, but he's, it, Nixon is also starting to perfect uh, his brand of, of um, resentment politics. Which grievance have, politics. Grievance politics. They which, call it today. Which, of course, have uh, so much power on the right in uh, today. Um, but it's also a situation where Eisenhower and, and Nixon's uh, self-interests are different, right? Eisenhower's like, look, I'm the president. I'm in, I'm in my second term. The economy's growing. The middle class is doing great. Nixon, of course is looking to run again he uh, and to be at the top of the ticket. So he's saying, look, I've got to have a problem I've got to solve, right? I, I, you know, this, this happens sometimes. Politicians at the same party look at the same right. stats and say this means something different. This, this reminds me of a favorite quote that I had. I, I, written, I wrote it on my wall, and if I ever got a tattoo, I, I just love it. It goes, um, when accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. So I like that quote. Anyways, so uh, King... Uh, has a biographer, L.D. Reddick. He writes a book about him called Crusader Without Violence. And then another boring part in the book. This is why this is such a great sh uh, show for you guys because you don't have to read this. We do the readings. We tell you everything that's going on. This is a comprehensive compendium, an encyclopedic of this chapter. This is a long one. So King goes to India. Okay, India. So he gets there late. He's on a plane, goes to India. He wants to meet with press. Uh, he has this whole meeting set up with um, Prime Minister Nehru. Nehru, um, big, important prime minister of non-aligned movement. While King's going there, he sees all this homelessness in the streets of Bombay. Immense homelessness makes King feel bad. He's like, oh, geez, this is awful. Um, he meets with Jaya Prakash Naren who's a disciple of Gandhi. Um, and remember, as we talked about previous episodes, 
King's into Gandhi and nonviolence. Uh, and King kind of learns that it becomes clear to him that Keller is not as big of an issue in India there uh, that is in the U.S. and that, you know, there's a bit of a different meaning with Keller. However, in the same next sentence, he says, lighter skinned brides seem to be preferred. So, okay, there is there is an issue there. Um, okay, and then he meets with this... Okay. Oh, something happened with my... Okay. Make sure everything's recording. Then he meets with somebody that I have to restrain myself because I find really annoying. And I... I just, Gabe got me off. He meets with this guy called Vinobu. Vinoba? And I, this guy is just like a man that's, the way Branch writes about him, he says, he's like a cartoon character speaking in, in Riddle. He doesn't write that. He says, a Western caricature of an Eastern guru. Um, Branch does use the word kook to kind of describe him. But he is somewhat respected later on in history. He's a little less respected, but... He goes on these long walks every morning at 3.30, daily prayer walks, and King's like, oh, my stomach doesn't feel so good, number one, which it didn't at the time. And number two, I'm not going on some like nine-mile walk and waking up at three in the morning. So him and Reddick get in the Americanized version, and they like get in their car, and they overtake him in the car. But they walk for him a little bit. They have these discussions about nonviolence. Um, Vinobu seems to be like legit, super nonviolent dude, like talking about like, you know, King throws out like, "What well, if Pakistan attacked you, you'd have to defend yourself. He's like, no, we're nonviolence. We're ha- hardcore nonviolence. And the problem I have with this, it, it's not the chapter. It's not Branch's writing. It's just like, I want to say to King, like, you know more than he does. <laughs> like, you know, maybe you don't. I mean, this guy studied under Gandhi, but you're more in the thick of this. You are, you don't need to go. It doesn't seem like you're getting much out of this walk, right? You're not getting much out of this. Like, what is this? Um... Any more thoughts on India? Well, I think... I There's think, like five pages on this. Yeah. There's like five or six pages on this. There's like one on the Little Rock thing. And I was like... Look, there are all these people um, who are liberals, who are Christian pacifists, who are fascinated with the example of Gandhi and the Indian independence struggle, which was significantly, if not no entirely doubt. nonviolent. No doubt, and no doubt. gigantic... A step forward Salt for f- freedom in the 20th century. And it lasted 20 years or something. Th- this being said, right, it's a different, it's a very different place, a very different context. And by the way, years have passed. Um, we're now a, a decade into Indian independence. India is its own country, which has fought wars, which is dealing with its own social problems and, and political challenges and participating in the Cold War in different ways and so on. And I think that this sort of Christian pacifist idealism is a very narrow frame to try to understand what the heck is going on in this place. In in the same way that your experience of uh, race and ethnicity in a place like uh, Georgia or Alabama won't explain the difference between different ethnic groups and the caste system and, and, and so right. on in India. You can learn a lot, but... It feels like there's so many instances in this part of the the, the book where King is trying to understand this guru or when he's talking to Indian journalists who are outraged when he suggests that Indy unilaterally disarm. Right, right. Um, He's sort of realizing that there's a whole world of politics and and history which he's not sort of plugged into. And I think he may also be realizing 
there's only so much I can draw from this, right. uh, which is going to uh, change what I do at home. And I just, me particularly, am not super interested in that. And I am interested in how there's a second march on Washington that Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph are organizing, but we don't get any information on that. And so I'm like, oh, come on. So they have another one of those, and King speaks there, and he's pushing. This is when he comes back. So he comes back. Um, uh, this talks about registering people to vote. And this is when J. Edgar Hoover gets mentioned in the book. J. Edgar Hoover, head of the, C, uh, head of the FBI, starts looking into Levis, Levison and King, um, mentions that uh, we're worried about Levison's ties to the Communist Party. And Branch sort of says he starts to focus on the civil rights leader as a way of career job security. Mm. <laughs> that I, I got the impression that he needs to kind of beef up people focusing on those to kind of say like, oh, these could be a threat from communists and stuff. And he had a lot of authority and independence. Um, there's tons of stuff written about Hoover. I don't care to really go into it, but a lot of violations of civil civil uh, liberties, spying, wiretraps, all that stuff. Uh, but oddly, he does mention that there was a lynching that took place in 1959 and King and Hoover were on the same side. Uh, this is an important little tidbit because Hoover went down there, found the people that uh, Hoover's FBI go, guys got the people that lynched and killed this guy, but they could not get the local jury to indict. And it's like, ah, oh, you can be the power, the head of the FBI, but the racist democracy is not going to work here. So back to the re voter registration drive. There's this underlying thing of where they're not registering enough people. Um, then there's this. A really smart way of not uh, registering people in by, by the racist whites. In Louisiana, they get this really bad blow where they remove 10,000 voters mm. from the rolls. Ella Baker is like crushed. Uh, they have an action down there. My notes aren't as good where they try to register people to vote, but the process is so slow it would take a million years. Um, King wants Tilly fired, which I might have said he was fired already, but he's the head, really, Baker's, do, it seems like, from all indications, Baker's doing all the work. Baker leaves, and King's like, King is like, please come back. We'll pay you. You can be acting director. She's still like, acting director? What? Come on. But she begs her to, he begs her to come back. Um, and King is coming back from India. He wants to organize like an American salt march. Um the salt march was the thing that happened in India where there was thousands and thousands of people that went to the sea to get salt because the British would not allow them tax. What was it? The, would not allow them to, um, there was a tax on there, salt. They were defying a kind of, uh, colonial old school law. Right. It, it, uh, it was, it was an, e an economic, uh, tariff. I mean, in a, it's a, it's symbolic a little bit like the Boston tea party. Right, symbolic. right, right, right. Um, so, uh, there's this, but with, Tens of thousands of more participants. Tens of thousands, <laughs> literally. That was the, the salt march. So there's the Institute of Nonviolent Resistance and Segregation. That gathers at Spelman College. There's poor turnout, sort of, it sounds like, but Rustin, Levinson, Smiley, if we remember, from uh, first, third chapter, um, is there. And this is a cool chapter, or not chapter, a cool little thing, I think, because they talk about the science of nonviolence. And how are we going to actually practice nonviolence? And this is one of my favorite parts. They say that um, 
most violent cigarettes. So there, it's a, it's like this training for. I don't know if it's students yet, but people that are just want to be engaged in nonviolence. And they say that most violent segregationists were only made more angry by the sight of passive demonstrators curled in the fetal position. Think about that. That's that just they're going to be more upset when people are protecting themselves. But so they say um, the this is just a way to get your livers kicked in and your backs broken. So they recommended on these trainings that when you are resisting violence you got to maintain eye contact with those people that are beating you i can tell you this right now i'm a weak person and i would be in the fetal position and this takes tremendous courage and pain uh resistance and hail these people that did this because i would probably ran away because i'm a baby. <laughs> I mean, like the like the the mental this is this is this is harder than fighting. Well, this is this is also where Branch makes a really astute observation, which is there is no universe where you're going to be able to train an army of people who are willing to do this. This is right. That's right because he starts to say there's some people that are you get you get to borderline kookiness here, which is you know it is a little kooky. You're going to go and get punched in the face. I mean that's. That's... Right, right. There's, there's a mental element. There's a spiritual element. There's all this sort of, for lack of a better term, technical training about how to interact in all these particular ways in these confrontations, which you have to take extremely seriously. Yes. Because, well, you don't want to get to not get hurt. To not uh, get hurt. Certain but, ways but of also, laying down. But, but also and... not to create a situation that where um, you can diffuse or or you or, uh, you can become the issue in some way. Or, or that you would respond with violence or something that could be perceived as violence or something like this. They People like Lawson and others have thought through all the ways to mm-hmm. organize these things, up to and including you're going to look the person in the eye when they're hitting and you. And Branch mentions this guy, Douglas Moore, who's kind of like an, I don't want to say extremist because that sounds like a bad word, but he was doing these ice cream parlor sit-ins. And they were like, man, that guy's really out there just doing it. Um, so King meets uh, John L. Lewis. This is around this time. Um, he comes down, John Lewis, future congressman, meets um, MLK, and he wants, he's like nervous, he's stuttering, he, he wants to go to Troy State College, and he wants help with a lawsuit. He's a country guy, country boy. Branch writes that, um, uh, this is a Negro whom no amount of education, education could polish, yet there was an incandescence in Lewis that shone through all his shortcomings. Um, he was ready to die to go to Troy State. Abernathy and King see something in him and say, you know, we're going to figure out something to try to get this guy to go to school and do this lawsuit. He grew up on a farm, um, not really into farm life. And this is just a funny little scene. Uh, he preached to chickens for hours he, when he was ki- like a kid, like eight, nine, ten. He cried when chickens were killed and eaten for dinner. And one of my favorite lines of the book, poetic humor. I love alliteration. Here you go, guys. Bedtime became a religious ritual in the hen house with Lewis in contemplation of his clucking congregation as he preached them to a peaceful roost. <laughs> Good job, Branch. Good job. Um, he developed a full ministry by the age of 10. <laughs> he buried chickens in the backyard and made sure flowers grew on their site. He also baptized new chicks. <laughs> so a little comic relief in this heavy book. Um, and- for his farm family must have thought this was borderline madness. Right. So we are now leaving New History and Chickens Ministry podcast, and we're going to get back to the reading Parting of the Waters. Um, 
So, okay. First person. Oh, he's the first person to finish school. Right. Man, this is a long Right. Day. It's a totally different background from King's own. Yeah. Right. King, like King's relative privilege is in contrast to Lewis's uh, life story. So back to Lawson. He's the guy that we mentioned in um, the... The last chapter, he uh, goes to he sends some people to Highlander Folk School. He sends John Lewis and this other guy, this brash guy named James Bevel, who would work himself into. So Lewis is in a divinity school or a a Baptist school to become a preacher. And his friend there is James Bevel, who he would always see like giving sermons and preaching in the dorm and sweating it up and getting really excited, but kind of was a goofball and didn't seem to take civil rights seriously. But like, you know what, I'll go on this little vacation to Highlander. There he meets Septima Clark, uh, uh, Lewis and uh, Bevel. Septima Clark is just like a saint of a person, it sounds like. That's what Branch actually says. She's in her 60s. Her specialty was teaching literacy. Branch says she had infinite patience, a leathery zeal, a saint to many. Um, And she gets wind of people saying, you know, Lewis is not a good leader because he's a stutterer. He's splitting in his infinitives. He's poor reading patterns. And it's like Clark is like, no, 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 no. Um, that's going to come. The people he needed to lead already understood him. And so did Bevel. And so Septima sees in Lewis kind of like leadership qualities. And it's like, yeah, he might not be a great speaker, whatever. We can work with that. That's going to come. He's still a young kid. I think he's like 17 or 18. Um, this really resonated with me because when I was younger, I wanted to be a union organizer. And I had somebody tell me that I would not be good at talking to nurses and that I was too rough around the edges and I should really just be talking to janitors or whatever. And Gabe hired me, sort of, to talk to nurses. And by the way, I'm now a nurse and a nurse practitioner. But so when talk I to read, nurses all the time. Yeah, and I talk to nurses all the time. But, um, but that someone told me that and it kind of stung. And I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, maybe I am a little rough around the edges, but I can put it together. Uh, so I don't know. I like this little story of people can improve their lives and all that stuff. Well, there's so, Gabe. Thank you for being my Septima Clark. <laughs> I mean, there, 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 there's a uh, you know me, the saint. Um, <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that, buddy. The, right? Exactly. Uh, there, there's uh, there's more to this though, which is about um, Clark's work around literacy and organizing with people who that's fine you can sit there clark's work around literacy and uh, engaging with people and organizing people who can't read or are learning to read uh, or people who can barely read and trying to help them become teachers of other people sort of by definition this is work with the working class this is work with domestic workers this is work with laborers and Which is the majority of the black community, but it's exactly the kind of engagement that the pastors are bored are, with. Are, they don't are, care. Are, are are looking down on. And by the way, it's also work being organized by women. Again, it's Septima Clark to the degree that Baker, when she realizes the potential of this, has to disguise her own enthusiasm for it. Which is, which is a little reading, bit heartbreaking. You're reading my script, because that's uh, thank you for doing that, because Baker is digging what's going on here big time, and she's saying, we're going to start recruiting people from here. These are the best folks, these African-American women that are learning how to read, um, and th- unlettered folks that the preachers, like you said, are not interested in. Please, sir, get away from me. That's my son that's in 
uh, barging in on the podcast. Um, uh, so yeah, he she she downplays. You're exactly right. Let's not repeat it. So King's still discouraged about the crusade for citizenship that it's like basically failed. He thought the SCLC and the NAACP were paralyzing each other. Um, he wants a he wants a professional publicist hired, and he wants Rustin. Um, and yes, he's a homosexual. Yes, he's an ex-communist. Yes, he has a criminal record, but he's good for the movement. He's good. We know him. He's smart. Like, got to get this guy involved. Um, so they kind of agree to that. And okay, now here's a depressing part of the story for me. Not really for the movement, but we spent all this time, all this time in the first hundred pages about Dexter. Dexter this, Montgomery that, Dexter this. We're leaving Montgomery. We're leaving Dexter. It's 1960. Actually, it's 1959. King is planning to leave Dexter and Montgomery and head to Alabama. It just makes sense. He's got to go to a bigger city. He's going to be co-pastor with Ebenezer. He can't be like a full-time pastor at you know, Dexter, he just feels bad about it. So he basically um, says this is the plan. Uh, it's the end of the year. And um, when it, fi- when uh, there's a little quote here from Governor Ernest Van Veer, when he finds out King's going to be coming to um, uh, the state of Georgia, I want to do this in a British accent because I don't like when people make fun of Southern folks with a Southern accent. So I'm going to try to read this in a weird accent because I'm going to do the, the governor. So, Whenever ML, okay, I can't do accents. Why don't you just read it? I'll just read. Whenever ML King Jr. has been, there has followed in his wake a wave of crimes, including stabbings, bombings, and inciting of riots, barratry, oh God, barratry, destruction of property, and many others. For these reasons, he is not welcome to Georgia. Until now, we have had good relations between the races. Okay, sure. So, by the way, that uh, governor. Later on, comes out and says, oh, I was wrong about that, all that stuff, and I regret it. You can go to his Wikipedia. Um, so when he's going to Atlanta, we're basically finishing up here, so I don't, we don't got much more going on here. But um, when he's going to Atlanta, Branch picks, uh, paints this picture of he's now, this is my term, it doesn't make sense, a young big fish in a big pond of other big older fish. <laughs> Because he is a big fish, but now there's all these other preachers and black aristocrats and the white power structure there in Atlanta, and he's kind of not the big important. Paul, be quiet. Um, he's not the big important person there anymore, and that and he actually, Garrow says he moves to kind of like a kind of a poorer neighborhood too. Um, Branch then mentions. Uh, that A. Philip Randolph is pushing forward for more attention to uh, civil rights at the AFL-CIO convention in San Francisco. And at one point, George Meany, old sourpuss Meany, he's another sourpuss in my opinion, says, who the hell appointed you to the guardian of all Negroes in America? Um, so then uh, Randolph then forms the Negro Federation of Labor outside the, the AFL. Um, and then we're going to get into this in next episode. But there's some IRS issues with King that he we think settles um, and he ends up paying like over $2,000, some to the state and some to the federal with just money he made from the, uh, probably the book and the church and everything else. So that we think it's wrapped up, but we're going to find out it's not. Here's this big rally at the end of January, the last day of January, 1960 Abernathy has this big send off. And then I'll leave you with this one day later on February 1st, Monday, 
Greensboro, North Carolina, four African-American students sit in at the whites-only lunch counter. This is just, they sort of did this on their own. We're going to get into it. But later on, they meet with student leaders and they plan, the plan is made to have students sit down in shifts not to miss classes. So by on day one, it started with four. By Wednesday, it swelled to 85 as the sit-in became a contagion. Anything you want to add, Gabe? Well, it's going to come just at the nick of time, right? King has struggled to build an organization, to engage with other organizations, to figure out how to find the next campaign, to try to interpret national politics and the example of India. And then four students in Greensboro are going to take us forward. Yep, just just kind of happened. So, all right, thank you for listening, and uh, we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.